our brain is a prediction machine. And Kahneman speaks to the predictive nature of our brain and how we steer through our predictions. And the two systems are, once we make a lot of predictions and we see the same thing, we sort of dial that down. And flow is kind of matching those predictions to our real-time operating during a performance, training session, or a race. And our perception from and in our environment contribute to our predictions and then to our actions, and that's what we do. And we need to make sure that our conscious mind doesn't get in the way of that. Or if it does, that it just you know jerks us into acting back to our perceptive instincts and reacting to them. That was Chris Martin, Olympic and national swim coach. And this is the Natural Born Thinkers podcast. Hello everyone and welcome to Natural Born Thinkers, a podcast designed to help you live a more creative lifestyle. My name is Sam Hunter and my job is to help people tap into their creative potential to solve their biggest individual and business challenges. I set up this podcast to reveal the secret source behind the creative thinking process and to provide a perspective on how we can live a life that enables us to more confidently draw upon our natural creativity. I believe that our minds are all uniquely wired to think differently and that the world depends on our diverse creative potential. Today's episode is focused on the lessons we can learn from the sporting world in order to improve ourselves, unlock our potential and master our mind for performance. To give an insight into the sporting world, I have invited Olympic and national swimming coach Chris Martin to be my guest. Chris is an amazing coach who has coached athletes all over the world, including multiple Olympians and an Olympic champion. I even had the privilege of training with Chris during my swimming career. He made such a big impression on me that I have never forgotten him, and it's a pleasure to have him on the podcast. We cover so much ground in this conversation, including the idea of self-determining theory for individual and team performance, mastering the mind for performance, and the importance of both play and rest to support self-improvement. In addition, we explore this really interesting idea of authenticity and the power of being in a position to express your true self to the world. While the linkage between swimming and creativity may not be immediately obvious, the insights Chris shares shows there is a lot of analogy we can draw. At the end of the day, creativity is a discipline, something that has to be learned and practiced to be good at it. But to be good at it, we have to manage our belief sets, allow our brain to work the way it's born to do, and connect with our authentic selves. My head was literally swimming, pun intended, (laughs) with new information during and after this podcast, particularly because this conversation hits on two of my biggest life passions, creativity and swimming. Chris, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. I'm so excited about our conversation. I'm glad to be here, Sam. And you know, I do like to talk. (laughs) As do I. (laughs) So there was no better person to have a chat with today about two of my passions, creativity and swimming. And I think um, I should probably say as we go into this, I literally tracked you down on a poolside in Malaysia (laughs) to have this conversation because... No one seemed to have your details, including my brother who trained with you for years. So um, I do thank the general manager of Malaysia Swimming. (laughs) I know you 
from when I was 15. But, you know, I've got to, even preparing for this, got to and know more about you because you never seem to ask a coach about their life. You're just very focused on your own at the time. (laughs) (laughs) Fifteen, a classic teenager. (laughs) So when did you decide to pursue a career as a swim coach and why did you feel that was the job for you? My mother and I still fight about that question, Samantha. And I guess like other coaches, falling into coaching was a conflagration of many Uh, semi-random events and decisions. But I think the seed was first planted in my mind um, when I was still at university and I had been walking with some people in my family the movie Chariots of Fire. Uh, Particularly, I was overwhelmed in a scene where Sir John Gielgud and Lindsay Anderson are playing uh, Cambridge Dons and, and they're squaring off against... Ben Cross, who plays Harold Abrahams, for dedicating himself too much to the Olympic ideals and his running ambition. They sort of accused him of having the attitude of a tradesman, in quotes, and the moment was heavy with anti-Semitism. Um, and in, in sort of playing that out, the, the actor Ben Cross, who's playing a Harold Abrahams, answers with the idea that excellence is the result of effort, thinking, and mastery, and he has a quote where he says uh, that the future lies with people like him, and uh, this, this, this moment moved me so much that I, I stood up in the theater. I didn't exactly cheer, but I was, I was so full of emotion. My sisters were there, and they were sort of pulling me down, but it's something <laughs> that stuck with me to this day, and, and I sort of realized that in coaching, it could uh, the act of coaching could mean much more than just the performance. You know, it, there, it could stand for a lot of bigger issues. And I think that that was why inevitably I chose coaching. Oh, that's such a great story. And I guess the only time I've ever seen someone else stand up in a, a movie theater was when this guy stood up to get very cross with a lot of teenage girls who kept screaming during <laughs> a screening of Meet Joe Black when Brad Pitt took off all his clothes. <laughs> So quite a different contrast there. But I, I actually rewatched Chariots of Fire last night and I did I watched that very moment that you, you talked about and it the whole story, to be honest, is just um hugely relevant to our conversation today, particularly if you pair off the different approaches that Harold Abrahams had to preparing for his race and that of Eric Little as well, who was very religious and got into his flow mindset and connecting with God during his races. And then Harold, who's very focused on connecting with himself and who he is and what he's about. So really interesting contrast in that whole story and um, both amazing athletes. But speaking of um, amazing athletes, I I think it's also important to say that you yourself swam, right? Yes, but not to the international level, barely to the national level. But it was a fantastic experience in terms of learning about yourself, what you can do, and, um, you know, input in and output out. And it, it, it hooked me at the time being an athlete, but it sort of refound me again as a grown And I can totally appreciate that too. Like I, I myself, you know, didn't make Olympics, so I was, I was pretty good. I committed to the lifestyle and then took a long time to get over it mentally after not having achieved my potential but it's only since starting this podcast series that I've reconnected with it and all the gifts that you learn through sport 
um, and the gifts it gives you when you train that hard that you don't necessarily realize until later on down the line. Um, so I can definitely appreciate how it comes back and finds you. And, and it has found you again, and it's found you, well, it found you in a very big way because it's set your career. And for those who aren't familiar with the life of swimming, can you bring to life the day in a life of a leading swim coach like yourself? So specifically from the time you wake up, because I think that will be a shocking point for most. <laughs> well, yes. And I want to say, you know, I, I'm, I'm fairly fanatical compared to most swimming coaches, but if, if you want the unvarnished truth, I wake up sometimes between 3.45 and 4.30 almost every day and have done it for um, decades. And I have not ever told you this, Sam, but I gave up using an alarm clock in 1986 uh, <laughs> on a dare with an athlete and, um, and sort of trained myself to get up at, at that time um, without assistance and have never used one to this day. We run 10 sessions a week, uh, twice a day on Mondays, Tuesdays, Thursdays, Fridays, and then a single uh, on Saturday and a single on Wednesday. Each session is two hours and 15 minutes or two and a half hours. And on top of that is, um, is dry land as well. So basically I get up in the morning, I train some kids, and that was just water time that I outlined. We have three or four dry land sessions a week uh, on top of all that. So it is uh, get up, go to the pool, do some dry land, do a little bit of personal exercise for myself, um, do some paperwork, eat lunch, and pretty much repeat the whole thing in reverse order again um, for the afternoon session. So it is not a very social life. Yes, but in this, in the kind of microcosm of society that swimming has in those times, you develop amazing relationships and have a lot of fun, which we were we started off this conversation with when we were chatting just before we got online. <laughs> Absolutely, I wouldn't trade it for anything. The people that I've met, the adventures that I've had, the countries that I've been to, you know, I, I really feel uh, fortunate to have found something. My father used to say, and the rest of my family are, are very successful and, and, and they all make much more money than I do. But my father, who died last year, used to say, the one thing I'll say about Chris, I've never heard him say the words he's going to work. It's always the pool practice. He avoids saying that the W word for what it is that he does every day all day that's amazing I guess I wonder how many other people are out there who feel that connected and passionate about what they do that it doesn't feel like work and I think that is an aspiration for many of us to have a career like that so I think that's really inspiring well, and I I, I, in the system <laughs> no I think I think you've got a magic trick that we all need to learn <laughs> but <laughs> But I guess unpacking it a little bit is that you you committed to the cause no matter what. It wasn't about a financial pursuit. It was about the commitment to helping others pursue their excellence and the change that could be made in helping someone on, on their journey. Um, connecting back to the Chariots of Fire story, you said 
earlier. I guess everyone has to to start somewhere. And I think you got your first head swim coach role at the Petty School in New Jersey when you were 26. Yeah, it was actually my second job. I, I had one for uh, at 24 for a couple of years. And then a lot of those kids came with me to the Petty School when I got that job. Okay, great. Because, um, but when you got to the Petty School, I think they their performance perhaps wasn't where they wanted it to be. They weren't doing desperately well. But in the time that you were with them, you turned their school's performance completely round the other way. They became combined national school champions multiple times over. And it was in this role that you also met and trained uh, two-time Olympic champion Nelson Diebel. And I think there was a lady, Barbara? No. Yeah, Barbara Bedford. Yes, and she was also there an Olympian. So something magic happened when you hit uh, Petty School's uh, swim pool. I just was reading an article, actually. Again, I didn't know this about you at all (laughs) until I started researching you online. And one of the articles I read had mentioned that part of this magic that you brought to the Petty School was that you didn't coach a team, but you coached anti-teams and this really stuck out for me because on the surface the idea of an anti-team is really contrary to what all of our belief sets have been led to believe that a team shouldn't be anti-anything <laughs> so could you possibly unpack that a little bit for everyone because um i think it, i know that this is going to line up a really important part of our conversation yeah okay well actually that, that term was coined by uh, a good friend of mine who um was a coach at, at harvard and arizona state and he recruited some of my swimmers and i'm not even sure uh why he said this but someone was asking about me and and the kind of teams i coach and, and he coined that phrase and said um, Chris doesn't coach teams, he coaches anti-teams. And everyone laughed in the room because they knew exactly what he meant. And what I, what I meant was that, for me, the concept of program and what it entailed was much more important than any preconceived or historical concept of, of team. Uh, team, for me, is kind of an old concept, uh, and it's heavy it's heavily influenced by the culture we all live, live in, and, and it's kind of very traditional. And when most people think of teams, they think matching outfits. Uh, everyone has a separate role, and the value of that role either elevates or denigrates a particular in- individual, especially in terms of, of one to the other. Uh, and I guess nowadays it's, it's kind of more in fashion to, to challenge some of that stuff, but you know, like a family or other hierarchical or patriarchal structures, often the desires of the individual are subsumed for the goal of the group. Now, I mean, on the face of it, that sounds fine, but in my life up to that point, and still, I've, I had always seen and still see too many people's uh, futures and individuality sacrificed for the greater good without having a say in the matter. Uh, so, and, and actually, you know, Chariots of Fire and, and, and one of the reasons why I chose swimming is because to me, uh, even though sometimes it's conducted in, in team groups, the act of actual competitive swimming is definitely not a team sport in my opinion. Uh, you know, people might disagree, but when Baron de Cooper Tan was getting the Olympic movement off the ground, 
he didn't want nations and flag waving and, and songs and all of that. Um, of course, it evolved to that nowadays. But really, when I think about the Olympic movement and individual sports, you know, when you take up a lane, the reality is you swim by yourself. So, you know, I, I wanted to make sure that I had a program idea that would never let any individual down. You know, looking at an anti-team isn't quite the most positive expression that you can put around that. Yeah, I didn't name it, Sam. <laughs> no, I know you didn't. I know, but we're critiquing that guy in Arizona. Yeah. <laughs> because, but it, it really got me thinking when I saw this. And um, I guess just to bring an example of a traditional team to life, I recently watched, I don't know if you watched the Netflix series about the Chicago Bulls, which I really enjoyed. Absolutely. I loved Michael Jordan and he is the embodiment of the idea of personal improvement all the time. I watched that with absolute relish and saw a lot of, uh, I'm not going to exactly say techniques, but many of the things that he spoke about how he motivated his teammates. He wasn't the coach. He was just the best player. But many of those things resonated with my times. So I guess the 80s and 90s must have had something to do with it. For sure. And I think the other piece about the Michael story that I took away was uh, when when he was on the team in the first instance, the team structure was very much that traditional idea of team that you talked about where there were definitely players on that that side who were taking more inferior roles, not being able to self-actualize because the idea was just get the ball to Michael. And I, I can totally understand why you'd play that game. But they they weren't winning when that was the the focus and then Phil Jackson came on board and had a very different approach to teaming and I think it was the whole triangle concept of how to pass the ball across everyone and then it became the strength of all the players and all their respective capabilities in order to help propel the team forwards it wasn't necessarily just about Michael anymore and I think that's maybe it's not quite a direct analogy to the quote-unquote anti-team that you created, but the idea of allowing everybody to fulfill their own potential and ability for the sake of the team was definitely something I think Phil tried to achieve with his Chicago Bulls team as well. Absolutely. I agree 100%. The triangle offense, and then Michael Jordan spent his time making sure that everyone was really good at their job, battle-tested. And, and that's, to me, very analogous to the idea uh, that we're speaking about. Well, an- another idea in here, and I like having been a swimmer myself, I do agree. It's, 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 there's something really weird about uh, being on a swim team in that, yes, you're totally in your own lane. You're in, driven to achieve your best. But it's amazing how even though it's an individual sport, some of the best friends I've made or some of the best times I've ever had have been on swim teams. And going more into this idea of quote-unquote anti-team, maybe this becomes a a bit of a better description of it. I thought that perhaps the idea of what you were creating was more about self-determination theory. So channeling individuals' intrinsic motivations to drive performance and rejecting external reward as the primary driver and goal. And, And that's why I wanted to bring my own experience into setting up this next part of the conversation is because as a swimmer, I was always driven by you know, very much in touch with what I was trying to achieve. Um, yes, okay, fine, you want to to win medals and what have you, but it's there's something in swimming as a swimmer where you're just driven to get the best out of yourself and and get a time and which sometimes I feel 
can mean more than the I guess the silverware or goldenware that that can come come with swimming so did self-determination theory resonate as a as a concept is it a better word to the anti-team uh yeah definitely I, I think there's a lot of congruence in the makeup of of uh self-determination theory as you sort of explained to me um and i sort of went through the the makeup of it and um and i could see yeah i could see the congruence very in a in very strong sense uh, in terms of competence, you know, get, getting people to be competent, my job was to show the athletes their untapped potential and to teach them the pathway to new competencies and then to be the manager and arbiter of their development. Uh, and see, once you sort of do that, then people can be pretty autonomous. Now, I imagine that, you know, Phil Jackson and Michael Jordan were doing pretty much that. Um uh, especially with a a new way of running the offense like they did. And then once you have those two things in hand and and autonomous individuals, you know, really uh, understanding their role and their possible roles in being successful and what they need to do to get that, that makes a connection between the team. Uh, and, and, and I guess determination theory talks about connection and relatedness. And, um, you know, that's where the rubber meets the road. I like the attachment to be based on something that I think everybody wants on the team, and that is respect. Everyone wants respect. And when you're in a role like you, you talked about the, the old bulls, if you're a person only takes one shot a day, I, I, I'm a, a night for a game, I'm sure you don't get the respect. But if there's p- the potential for you taking the last shot or being, um, you know, trusted at any given time to do any given job, you're going to have that respect and, and not just the respect for your position, uh, be it point guard or center or, or breaststroker or freestyler in my sport. Um, the hierarchy's gone and, uh, and everybody gets that respect. And I think with that respect comes connection and relatedness yeah because those are the the three key components of self-determination theory so as you mentioned competence and people needing to gain mastery to learn different skills and when they feel they have those skills needed for success they're more likely to take actions to achieve their goals and then the second one you mentioned was autonomy so people feeling in control of their behaviors and goals and as you said those the competence and autonomy are related as if you if you feel you've got the skills and capability and you've got your goals laid out you become autonomous and how you want to drive yourself towards them and then the the third component being connection and relatedness and how if you're an individual on your journey to achieve your goals to be the best that you can be and you can see other people doing that too it creates this mutual respect and ability to connect with others because you're all going through a, you're all on a journey with each other in a pool yeah that's how self-determination is built you just laid it out step by step these ideas that you're talking about having a flat hierarchical team are still things that people are striving for and very much the mode jour, particularly when it comes to creativity it's it's proven that those teams where the ceo sits out in the I guess, like the open space working areas rather than being squirreled away in their own office, have these more collaborative, creative cultures because there is that flat hierarchy and the ability for for people to to speak up no matter what level you might be. 
So, you know, you were one of the first to do it in the swimming world successfully back in the 80s. And obviously, you've learned a lot since then. So for people who are considering trying to drive more towards a self-determination team set up with that flat hierarchy, what do you believe are the critical conditions for success that you'd want to share? Well, um, the, it's, it's not easy. Uh, and it's not easy because, in a way, you're sort of not exactly rolling with the dominant culture that people see uh, in the rest of their lives. And I think the value of it is um, you get what I call asymmetrical performance versus people that are more resourced. If you can, and this is why I now love it and laugh when I read, most people my age are always making fun of these startup cultures and the way people interact and, you know, it's not an office or people don't show respect to their elders, that kind of thing. And I just crack up because that's been my whole entire professional life. And the reason I started to do it was, um, I had a lot of high school swimmers make the national team back then, which was the American national team, which was very difficult to do. And to have high schoolers successfully compete against people who are older than them, you need what I call an asymmetrical performance. And the only way to do that is to outwork, outthink, outplan people who are supposed to be better than you. Uh, and so as you call it, the, the, the flat nine hierarchical expression of team is the best way to use limited resources and maximum information sort of aimed towards that. So that's what you get out of it. But to me, there's there's only one, the, the biggest necessity for this to happen is absolute dedication at the top. And that dedication has to be visible. And when I say the top, like, like you mentioned, it doesn't mean sitting in an off in a grand office. The, the people that you are working with, or I should say that you are working for, they need to see that the leadership is more committed than they are. Um, and it's funny because I used to think back to, to um, and I guess he was around this time too, but when people told stories about Steve Jobs and Bill Gates and, 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 and people like this who were starting great things, it's not the individualism, individualism of them and their ideas that stands out, but their massive commitment to the enterprise that made people also want to behave the same way. So if you're going that way, you you can the the uh, I mean I guess in, in my instance, my swimmers never get to the pool before I do. I've even had them. They've even tried sometimes to keep getting up early in order to see when I get there. But they still to this day they have no idea. They just know that when they're there, they they look around because they know I'm hiding or I'm you know I'm doing something somewhere whenever they're there. So they have to see that whoever is doing the planning is more committed than at least as committed as, as they are uh, and at least as committed as the, the highest performing person. And obviously, in the story you told about Michael Jordan, he obviously saw that, you know, Phil Jackson's mind was never slowing down. So that's I'm sure that's why they got along. And my most motivated swimmers know that whatever they think of at whatever time, I'm willing to listen. And actually, anybody in my programs, even now, no matter who they are, 
if they have something they want to talk about, there is no off time as far as I'm concerned. And that's a great thing. And that's like, I think a lot of managers and leaders try to strive to to deliver what you do and just re- reflecting on, on on what we've covered so far it's not an anti-team it's not a self-determinating team you just created the desired team structure that I think a lot of businesses are trying to achieve which is allowing individuals to become their best selves have fun doing it, respecting one another and working together cohesively as a team in a way that everybody feels they have a voice. I've definitely been on those teams. Um, In fact, I met my husband on one of those teams. On the flip side, I've definitely been on teams where there have been people, managers who haven't really been interested in anything other than achieving their best selves and going to win at all costs. And that doesn't necessarily mean authentically bringing other people along on the journey with them. So there's definitely something in that. If you truly want a great team experience, you have to ask yourself a question as a leader. Do I truly want to create a great team experience? This does go into the competitor the competitor mindset because you have people in the pool who are competing against each other. And how, how do you just make sure that competition is healthy and it doesn't undermine that team structure that you've created? Well, uh, for us and for me, healthy competition is is the totality of, of the kind of training that I try to construct. It's 24-7 all the time, uh, and it's not always easy to maintain, but the, the athletes, they yearn for it and expect it and even promote it. But the, the, the way I get away with both of those two things is I try on a day-to-day basis not to make the con- competition necessarily between you know me and you or one swimmer and another. It's my improvement against your improvement, day by day, set by set, all the time. So if one person is swimming one stroke and all of a sudden – they swim another stroke and they keep up with someone who that's their main stroke and don't do it every day. Ooh, people take notice. Uh, and, and just by making, even if people do the exact same thing, if it's my improvement versus your improvement, that distinction makes competition a lot more healthier. And it also inculcates respect between teammates. You know, they, they will respect you if you played or did much better today than you've ever done before obviously at the final competition you know it is about real time and the end result but i think that when you have healthy competition and it's done well then the final performance is just an expression of the group group dynamic i don't think it's that difficult at all you just have to make sure that it is relative competition not absolute competition on your way to the final job. I'm always told I'm very competitive. I I am, you know, and if, if I'm going to be honest, I'm a competitive person. I enjoy it. Not because I want to outdo someone else, but I want to see what I can do. And um, obviously you have come from the swimming world where, you know, you do challenge each other. It's fun. You like to see what you can do and, and you spur each other on and, and you do respect it when you see someone else's achievement and it makes you want to to do more and I've definitely brought that in as a, a leader into the workplace where I'm like oh this team did that we can do this let's create something and raise the bar and people who were of that energy I guess were excited by that idea but a lot of people thought I was being disrespectful to others achievements 
And and it was never a case of that. It was always like, oh, that's really interesting. Let's see if we can go one better. But because in swimming, you have this immediate visibility of someone's improvement or when someone's done a great time or when someone's got faster and and it spurs you on, but there's sometimes, and depending on the role you're in and the job and environment you're in, there isn't necessarily that visibility to really understand and notice someone else's improvement. So it can appear threatening when someone says, oh, let's go one better. So I really like that idea of being able to sense someone's improvement. But also, if you are going to drive competition, you have to do it in a visible way so people can understand that you're not trying to push someone out that you're actually trying to create a healthy environment that is pushing everyone up raising everyone's game but if you don't have that visibility i think it can get difficult for people to see at the end of the day we all know there are there are winners and and people who just seem to serially win (laughs) um i guess if we go to the swimming world you, you know you're talking about michael phelps and the many 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 medals that he's won at the olympics and then not just to to kind of keep it on the mat on the man here but for swimming fans there's also the katie ledeckis of the world who's an amazing freestyle middle distance long distance swimmer and has won many many medals too and you know looking at these champions who win again and again and again i guess if you have read the articles or seen Michael Phelps's body. He's got a proportionately big torso, huge feet, a huge wingspan. Other than having gills, it's like he's designed to be in the water. And, you know, you could say, is it just because of his physical abilities that his physical gifts that he was able to do what he does? Or, you know, is there, in your experience, is there more to what makes an Olympic champion in the swimming world? Is, is it an innate gift? Um, like in your physicality or is there more to the story? Oh, there's way more to the story. And that is why I love swimming so much. Uh, Yeah. The the two athletes you've mentioned, they do have a lot of physical natural gifts, but it's much more to that to, to make the kind of repeated success that that they both have. Uh, It's interesting that I think it was after the 2008 games, USOC did a survey of athletes over three Olympic cycles and, uh, and it was kind of a psychological evaluation. And there were two mental aspects that were overrepresented. Um, one was self-belief, um, and the other one was what they termed the hate-to-lose mentality. And, you know, I, I can see that in, 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 a, in a lot of people that I've been on national teams with in many, many countries. But in my experience, people to the level of, um, of Phelps and Ledecky and what I mean is, is, you know, individual non-relay gold medalists that win over and over and over, they have some distinct mental qualities. And it seems to me that they try to express who they are to the world through their swimming. Um, you know, I've also found that they seem to have a major developmental coaching influence. And I might be wrong, but I, I have seen beyond the idea of um, the, the coach village raising a champion, nah, I'm, I'm, I'm not so convinced that that's what happens, though I think at the end, when you're near the end of your journey, it's great to have a team around you. Um, but I've often found that there's usually one person um, who's done the most work in sparking the athlete's kind of commitment to improvement. Um, uh, in terms of Michael Phelps and Kate Ledecky, Ledecky they both fit that mental profile to a T. You know, they are committed not just to win, but to getting better every single time they go to practice. 
And if they don't, you can see on their face that they don't. I mean, they eventually get over it and keep moving. But the winners seem to have that extra percentage. Mentioned. Ian Thorpe, who was the, the big, big dog swimmer from Australia at the time, he was kind of just pre-Michael Phelps and then Phelps came in and kind of took the reins but he he had said that the eight and eight so Phelps's eight gold medals in the 2008 games couldn't be done and I believe that Michael Phelps had that post-it in his locker in the changing room saying it can't be done and he saw it every day and in your view of the mentality to express themselves I think that was a motivator to Phelps and that he wanted to prove that he could express himself in that way he could do eight and eight and he used Thorpe's poo-poo of his ability to do it as as a motivation yeah we'd be crazy to tell Michael Phelps he can't do this or he can't do that uh you'd be out of your mind because I mean I have been fortunate enough I know his primary coach pretty well uh, and I do remember when he was a young boy and that guy was completely expressing who he was all the time. Uh, and yeah, yeah, that would be a, a, a seriously bad move if you were his competitor because he would take that as an absolute challenge and he would dedicate incremental improvement towards that goal. Yeah, and he did it. And he it did was it. fun to watch. All that we've said so far in terms of your journey into coaching, the team structures you've created, the mindsets of the athlete, there is this true or idea of authenticity that, that keeps coming up, which is being true to your own intrinsic motivations, mm-hmm. being true to your teammates, so being um, respectful and being authentic about the emotions that you share in, in that relationship because that's what you need for respect. Even your journey into coaching is like you were true to what you knew. M- oh, you yeah. Passionate you, that's about. a great description. And then obviously the fight of the athletes to, to want to express themselves. I think that I think it's just such an important point. I mean, I don't mean to downgrade that point, but by now going back to my swimming career again, but um, I just love doing it. <laughs> I really, really enjoyed it. I don't think I ever sat there hungrily every day wanting to be an Olympic champion. I did sit there hungrily every day wanting to be better and improving myself. And that was my motivator. But I don't think I ever felt like I had something I uniquely wanted to express to the world. And I'm I'm not saying that that was my downfall as an athlete, but I think it's just a really interesting point for people who are on a journey in their career to really think about who are you? What are you about? What do you want to show to the world? Because if you are fortunate enough to really understand yourself and what you want to achieve and what you want to share, once you've got that, I really think it can propel you where you want to go next. So I really wanted to bring up this idea of authenticity um, as as a word in itself in all that you've shared with us so far. Cheers, I I completely especially in the description of myself, uh, you know, I, 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 I wholeheartedly um, take on what you're saying. I think, I mean, you, you know, you shared at the beginning that you'd never class what you're doing as, as work. You're clearly happy in the, in the job that you do and you've been doing it for many, many years and, and you're still happy in it. And you made your choice to go in this direction. I guess we're both lucky to be in a position to make a choice about which way we wanted to take our careers. And, you know, I feel authentically connected to what I'm about and what I'm doing now. And I find with that, it comes a level of happiness. Oh, and and yeah, when you get proficient and happy, it all 
it's, I don't even have a word for it, but there have been 10, 12 moments in my life and I'm always hungering for them. And it's when I'm on a pool deck. People say, what, when are you the happiest in swimming? It's at practice. When you have thought about everyone's needs and it all comes together and you look and you see 20 or 30 people all functioning the way you sort of had hoped that they would and planned out for them and really going for it, I just get a surge of, I don't even know what to call it, but I get an emotional charge that people usually, the, the only other descriptions I've heard of is when people see awesome nature. For me, when I see awesome connection and complexity at the same time, I get a chill and I live for the next moment that I'm going to have like that. Well, that's so great. And and I also think what's so amazing about it as well is that 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 joy that comes for you isn't necessarily about something that's um, you've created necessarily directly for yourself, but things that you've created for other people um, to enable other people's performance, which is an amazing gift to be able to give to someone. So I think that's a, a really great way to, to end this idea of, of being able to align truly with what you want to achieve and be committed to what you have and what you want to give to the world to enable you to have moments um, just like you shared. And, you know, to pe- speaking about individuals that you've helped on their journeys, of, of which there are many, my, many, and my brother included. And you have also yourself coached an Olympic gold medal winner, which was Nelson Diebel. Yeah. And... I know Nelson was very much one of those swimmers who wanted to express who he was and how he felt about the world as a teenager. So someone with that mindset that you shared earlier about an Olympic champion. I think it'd be worth touching a little bit on um, Nelson's story and how you helped coach him to his Olympic success and the, the dynamic. You mentioned that there's often one person in who's had a larger role in an athlete's journey and helping them get to where they're going. So um, just would love to hear your experience and story about coaching an Olympic champion. Well, um, he, he had the self-belief in spades. And it's funny because he talks about how, at, how you know, other people's belief in his abilities inspired him to believe in himself but when he, you know, when in the times he said that, I think he's thinking about the end. When I first met him, um, you know, he he did really believe in himself, what he could do. I always remember, I mean, these times won't matter to anyone, but I mean, he only been through me for a couple weeks, and his time for a hundred yard breaststroke was 107. He looked up and said, "I'm going to go 57," and everyone on the team laughed except me, um, because I sort of knew he was serious. Um, so he did, he did fit the, the mindset of having a lot of self-belief and not liking to lose. Um, the trick for me was, was, was convincing him of kind of our system and getting him to believe that paying the price would allow him to express himself in this new way, which was competitive swimming. You know, he, he sort of had a little bit of a rough time when he was growing up and that his parents split up and it, it, it kind of took him, you know, a little bit hard, but um, I think he really did like the environment where um, everyone was accepted to the extent that they were committed to effort. Uh, and I don't think, you know, it's the kind of thing where I don't think he could, he had, I don't think many people see that, especially in their young years growing up. So it can really, um, you know, motivate you to work very, very hard. 
and he worked extremely hard um, to um, to achieve what he did, even to the point where you know it, it was a big story then, but it's 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 sort of been forgotten. 14, 15 months before the Olympics, you know, he kind of had an accident and broke some bones in his in his arms. And for him to come back from that to, to win the gold medal was was nearly miraculous. Um, but it only was done because of all the effort and knowledge that um, he had learned in in sort of preparing. So, you know, in a way, it's 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 another story, a smaller scale story. Um but one that I've seen many, many times in people that you know touch the wall first. They have that mindset. Mm, he shared an aspiration that some people laughed at, but you believed in. And then there was that one person there that kind of when someone else believes in what you're aiming for, I think it can help validate and motivate what you want to go for. Yeah. The point I'd like to make, though, is that that flips around. When you start in an in a organization like that, you start with motivating people to believe in their ability to commit to improvement. And then once that process gets going, after a few years, they motivate you. It, it, it goes completely the other way, you know, and, and they help you find more information or they lead you to more information that will feed back into your relationship with the athlete. And it just becomes closer to a perfect point of, of, of total information share. And that's how... I always think success is sort of around that. I think even in an article Nelson wrote that he said it was people's belief in his abilities that inspired and spurred him on to believe in himself. And just as in life, in, in sport, like the mental game is just so important as much as the physical piece. And what, what are some of the examples you've seen where belief sets have played a part in your summer's careers? And how did you coach them through it? And, and, and just to add a little bit of mess to this question, given your experience training people around the world, could you provide maybe a bit of a cultural lens to some of your stories on this one? Uh, yeah. Uh, and, and it is something that not many coaches have been to as many places as I have or coached as many places as I have. So I do have a little bit of an extra perspective on this. Now, at first I coached in America, and I have to laugh because um, one thing that, as you know from living there, that the Yanks have lots of is confidence. And a lot of times what you have to do when coaching American kids is to kind of put that confidence in a concept of reality. Um, when I went to Britain, I found that that was – I mean, I hadn't even really thought of the word when I coached my first – 16 years in America of confidence because almost everyone seemed to be born with it. When I got to Britain, I saw that there were lots of people who uh, worked extremely hard, but when you got to the competition, there was this issue of confidence. And I know that at UK Sport, they had a lot of experts that were always trying to build this up. And, um, and, and again, I think this is a, a result of the culture. So, you know, in terms of the British, you know, they want the charismatic leader, be it Henry V, Robert the Bruce, Elizabeth I, or Winston. Uh, you know, they want someone they can rally around, and then that's where they find their uh, belief system in, in the charismatic leader. Um, and then when I went to Asia, my mind was massively open 
to a completely different culture. And I kind of had to reorient myself um, to another coach, uh, to another culture and, um, and to be an effective coach. You know, I, I coached in Shanghai, China for five years, and now I'm in Malaysia. And in order to get, you know, to, to do what I wanted to do in both these places, I had to understand the culture environment that I was dealing with and then sort of slowly coax the athletes into seeing a different perspective. Um, back in the day, I had read Richard Nesbitt's excellent book called The Geography of Thought. Uh, and when I moved to China six years later, um, it really came in handy because I revisited his his idea that um, that language and culture orients brain function and you know performance is a, it, I knew myself that performance is is a is a is a result of a lot of brain function. So. Um, in the book, they make the case that there's a difference between those who speak phonetic languages and those who use Mandarin. Uh, and I had a, and when I initially got to China, I had an interpreter with me all the time, and, and it was hilarious, me getting used to their culture. But because of that book, I knew what was going on between my Western perspective and their Eastern perspective um, and sort of got through it. And one of the jokes was after a while when, and this wasn't necessarily always with the athletes, but this was with the management. Um, if we got to a block in, in China, I used to say, is, is this Marxist-Leninism speaking or is this Confucianism? Uh, am I dealing with 1949 or 3000 BC? And um, you know, my bosses used to crack up when I said that. And they used to say, it's a little bit of both. Mr. Chris, Coach Chris. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I've had three really different cultural experiences. I've enjoyed each one of them. And I could see that culture with a capital C, you cannot just have a coaching playbook that doesn't take into consideration the culture in which you are working. That's so interesting. And I can see, like, even within the UK, there's I believe there is a difference between an English athlete's mindset and a Scottish athlete's mindset. Totally. Is there a particular story of, of mindset where, like, is, do you have a favorite story of an athlete you coached in one of these countries where their mindset perhaps wasn't where it was meant to be and, and how you coached them to get through it? Well, uh, in, in Asia, uh, I will share this. I'm not sure if this is completely what you want to hear. But uh, spe uh, speaking Mandarin is not really about the information itself. There's a whole social dance that has to be done. And I used to term this ping pong, where the, the interlocutors would have to go back and forth three or four times to get the information out when I asked a question. So you got to understand in swimming, time is very short. Like there's only 20 seconds between the interval. And if I ask a question, I want to answer. I didn't necessarily want to do it two and three times through the interpreter to bounce back and forth. Well, the kids caught on to this idea and they once said to me, Coach Chris, it, for us, it's like squeezing toothpaste. You have to squeeze the tube to get the information out. So what I always used to do is 
I used to say, we don't have the time. I'm really sorry that I'm not used to the way you do it. But here, I don't have so much time. So I would just go to my interpreter, who's, who was the greatest person I've ever worked with. His, his name was Jerry Dye. I used to say, in front of the kids, and they could understand English by this point. I've been coaching there for a while. I'd say, no ping pong. I'm going to walk away, come back with the answer. And the kids would giggle because it went against every single thing they had learned their whole life in terms of respecting authority and taking your time and not committing to a, uh, to a piece of information that could be traced back to you unless someone said it first. But I used to say, you have six seconds, break it down. And they would just giggle and then maybe they would get it down to two hits between the interpreter and the athlete. And then I'd turn my head back and say, okay, what is it? And they would say so. And and that would crack me up. I love how the culture in Asia of hierarchy and respect kind of got in the way of you being able to communicate quickly with a swimmer in between a race or when they were getting ready exactly. for a race. <laughs> Exactly. It was it was actually humorous, Sam. It was humorous. We would laugh all the time because they knew what they were doing and they still couldn't stop doing it. <laughs> I guess it, you, you'd either laugh or find it incredibly frustrating. <laughs> yeah. If I had never read the book, I would have been frustrated beyond belief. But because I had read the book, I sort of knew what was happening. But, and I think that's an important piece is that if you're coaching anyone, being able to understand where their cultural belief set has come from, you have to take the time to understand where someone's coming from to be able to then change your mindset and how you work with them. And and I've definitely experienced that in my career. They also go into the mindset, like often we go into sessions which are creative problem sessions and you ask people in the room you know are you do you think you're creative that question gets asked sometimes and people will be like yeah whatever I'm not really that creative and you know you think well if you believe that about yourself and that's the belief set you're coming in with then you you know we've got a lot to fight against during the course of a day (laughs) because if you tell yourself you don't believe in something like that's that's a huge part of the game if, if you tell yourself hey I'm really I've often wondered if someone kind of said to themselves I'm a really creative person and just had that mindset what different results we might get going in and I, I used to get really annoyed with the team when they used to say I want you to think really creatively right now because you're asking someone to do something that they don't necessarily be- believe they're any good at and it doesn't work there's a tension right there and and this brings this whole into this whole idea of mindset and mentality it's it's with you in the workplace as much as it is with you in a sports field or a swimming pool and this the mental component of sport was only really just getting legs when I left I mean it was definitely talked about but not at all the way it is now and obviously neuroscience has developed so much more since then and um, as I was preparing for this podcast and my husband reminded me of the book The Inner Game by W. Timothy Galway. As a tennis coach, um, Galway observed that players had a constant dialogue between their conscious and subconscious minds, particularly when learning something new. So he found that athletes that were overly focusing and concentrating on feedback on a new technique or had a particular belief set about their ability, so basically using their conscious mind, 
it, that could in fact limit their performance in that moment as they were denying the natural learning powers of the subconscious mind, which is essentially what we use and learn with as children. I mean, Galway found that when an athlete actually relaxed, when they were given a feedback and played and then interspersed, I suppose, with different shots to, to take away their conscious mind, they more naturally started to respond better. And this makes sense to me. If, if I reflect to my time as a swimmer, I remember races where I did just let go. I remember doing my 400 IM at the Nationals where everyone, you know, thought I might even win until it get to the freestyle. Um, <laughs> um, everything just fitted together. I relaxed. I didn't even overly focus before my race. I just got up on the blocks and went. And, um, you know, it all just came together. And I really, I didn't know it then, but reflecting now, I really feel I achieved flow the mindset where everything just comes together and flow mindset is something that's talked about and it is it is proven to show improved performance and I wondered I mean I no one ever coached me quote unquote for flow um but I wondered if it's an idea that's talked about much now in the swimming world and you know is it a desired aspect of coaching and if so how do you do it well this is kind of my wheelhouse these days you know I'm really interested in this um, we know a lot more now than we did back then uh, in what I guess was and used to be called flow states. But now we understand a lot more about the brain phenomenon that attributes to and underpins flow states. And what can be measured now is absolutely amazing. I've never read Galworthy's book, but I did know about flow states. And in Scotland, when I was there with you, we, we had an Eastern European um, uh, sports psychologist who was kind of in that and, and just as I was leaving he was arriving and he was starting to uh, help kids along along that, those lines. Now this is 20 years ago so in those days you know I was reading a book uh, called How We Learn by Benedict Carey and, and I had read years before uh, Stephen Pinker's The Blank State and, and even after that um, you know how the brain actually functions uh, and, and that got me interested in it. But now we're starting to understand that uh, subconscious perception and the reaction to it has a lot to do with how we learn things for sure and also how we perform. That's I, I, I totally agree. I think even now when I'm at work, I can go into flow. I like go in the zone. And it all just comes to me. And I think there has to be an element of that in how we learn. Once you do something again and again and again, and you develop mastery and you really refine the neural networks that require you to move in a particular way, it almost becomes unconscious and how, how it just comes to you and you're able to do it. Are there techniques that you give to people? Like how do you trick people into performing that way? You get them to focus one way when something else is happening. And I do have sort of some drills and techniques that try to aim perception in one direction or another. Um, yeah, the, the neuro people, and some of this I've got books and some of it I've been doing for a long, long time. And mainly in terms of skill acquisition, because to me there's sort of two different levels here. There's skill acquisition and performance. And for skill acquisitions, what you're talking about, yeah, it, it is. It, there is a, a big, and the word you use, an unconscious. I'll, I'll go along with that. Um, is a large part of how we learn things. Recognizing how the body kind of naturally works, 
and how in, in my sport, because it happens in water, learning the defense mechanisms that, that the body has when it goes into water and sort of putting those two things together. So there are sort of drills and, and, and techniques that we can use to make perception unconscious. Now, I mean, for, for your listeners, one of the coolest things I've ever heard, it makes complete sense to me, is there's a story, and I don't know if it goes in the 60s or 70s or some long time ago, where, and it had to do with Ultimate Frisbee, and I heard this on someone else's podcast, sorry, Sam, <laughs> but where they applied dog training the clicker to people learning how to do certain moves and the, the the learning curve went spectacularly upward no speaking just clicking when they were off by a little bit or a little bit this way and people started learning at a hugely fast rate and um i remember after after hearing that it made a lot of sense to some of the things i do where I don't really try to tell people how to change their strokes so much anymore. I try to create situations where they will figure it out on their own mm. by just moving in a direction or trying to feel this or trying to think that or paying attention to a certain part of their body. Is, is that because when you're doing the clicking, you're creating more of an instinctive, immediate reaction? Where you... Correct. Okay. Correct. They, and, and, and they... After they did this experiment, apparently, gosh, I wish I would have thought this before. After they did this experiment, they went back to trying to coach people, and it just the the the, the practitioners like, no, no, just bring the clicker back. <laughs> <laughs> so when we create creative problem solving sessions, the way they're designed is understanding to a degree how the mind works when it comes to creating and developing new things. And there are a specific set of activities created for people to go through that would take people completely away from their conscious minds and have them go through this process where their brains would activate in a way that's more instinctive and allow them to relax and have their mind think in a way that allows them to bring out new creative insights. And as soon as someone said, I want you to think really creatively, it undoes the whole thing. Makes perfect sense to me. So obviously we've talked now about the conscious mind and the subconscious mind. I really believe that there is a difference between the conscious subconscious mind, but then also the unconscious mind. You recommended that I read Alex Hutchison's book, Endurance, where he brings up the idea of the power of unconscious mind in delivering human potential. And I believe there is an argument that scientists are currently grappling with as to whether it's your conscious mind that says, hey, this is too much. You know, my lungs are going to burst. My legs are going to snap. I can't go any faster. Or is it an unconscious mind? There's a, a moment where there's a, a biological process that unconsciously happens that tells your body to stop. Yeah, the central governor theory. Uh, central governor theory is that there's, you know, there's a there's a defense mechanism in the brain that will only let us go to a certain amount of our potential, uh, and that you know it, it, your brain decides that early, early on, and and that is a big issue that people are trying to go through because they can measure all this stuff now between your motor cortex and depending on how emotionally you feel about different things, the insular cortex can interfere with that. And a lot of people who have performance blockages in, in competition, it is because of that, uh, that negative interaction, which gets in the way of what you already know how to do. Also in the book was a, a woman named Sari Sakovic, who's a, a, a silver medalist from the Beijing Olympic. She did a graduate degree and 
neuroscience and, and specifically like performance neuroscience for sport and the military and people like that. And she wrote a great book for sort of age group swimmers, uh, breaking that down into ideas that, that they can they can live with. And, and I really think, you know, that is important to understand how we try to keep emotions in a different place than, um, you know, all the things we've learned in our run up to a championship performance. Trying to pin that story and, and the rest of it together. Maybe I can tie this together for you. Our brain is a prediction machine. And Kahneman speaks to the predictive nature of our brains and how we steer through our predictions. And the two systems are, once we make a lot of predictions and we see the same thing, we sort of dial that down. And flow is kind of matching those predictions to our real-time operating during a performance, training session, or a race. And our perception from and in our environment contribute to our predictions and then to our actions, and that's what we do. Uh, and we need to make sure that our conscious mind doesn't get in the way of that. Or if it does, that it just, you know, jerks us into acting back to our perceptive instincts and reacting to them. Perfectly put. If I try and put it out into the workplace example, like if you're going to work and you consciously tell yourself that you're not good at something. You'll never be better. You'll never be better. If you go in with an open mindset and, you know, you supplement your learning with additional areas that can basically will boost your mind in different ways, you'll go somewhere. When we've talked about the unconscious mind, when you're doing creativity, the magic can happen from your unconscious mind where connections happen between your memories and interests and other processes that are stored back there that will just, if you... Um, have the right technique where they'll all connect together and they'll bring out new ideas but it's all about you have to manage this conscious mind at the front and not let the conscious beliefs and emotions get in the way of allowing your brain to do what it's naturally geared to do absolutely you got to turn it off lots of time and whilst we've talked about this in you know very serious way i think a lot of stuff that's also come up is how much fun that you you clearly have and what you do and i remember as a swimmer how much i enjoyed it is there something in in play as well that you feel that's worth unpacking well play to me is super important in terms of skill acquisition we learn everything by advance and retreat and organically we we don't learn in increments we don't even learn really logarithmically. We learn organically. One step, one step back. Two steps, one step back. Then it's four steps. You know, the, 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 the organism adapts to, to learning. And play is a big part of that. Um, you know, the, the brain, our brain is, is, is a, like I said, a prediction, a prediction machine in terms of um, dealing with our environment, but what it has done is it's evolved to be a brilliant over-under machine. Uh, and, and I read a fantastic book called Probably Approximately Co Correct, which talks about how we evolved this super complex, the most complex thing in the, in the universe, the human brain, which is really good at estimating our capabilities uh, and even doing it under pressure. And play, when, and especially play when we are young, is a massive engine for that process. 
And that's where I think play is, is really, really important. And now, yeah, ironically, for whatever reason, as adults, people, if you bring up the idea of play into the workplace, um, people like look at it as if it's not professional. It's like play is the antithesis of professionalism. And, and arguably, like, you know, as adults, we do still play in our life. We just less consciously call it play, like if we have a hobby uh, or exactly. watch a movie that makes you relax and you enjoy it. But you know, in the workplace, the word play should not be something that's dismissed or seen as childish. It, it's the essence as, as of what we've been talking about of enabling people's performance and their ability to learn. Well, I think video games are, are proven that, you know, you're right, because more people are playing them. They're becoming part of simulations in the workplace. They're, they're becoming parts of, of everything. So I, 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 and I guess we're calling it play, but Really what it is, it seems to be, is unlocking our primary uh, brain functions and reactions and perceptions and predictions to the environment we live in. That's what we're good at. Culture has made these rigid rules and, and things that we need to do. And the idea of professionalism, that's a human concept that's what? Two, three, four hundred years old, if that, maybe even less. Play is millions of years old. As, as long as there's been Homo sapiens, there's been play. So there you have it. I just love that so much. People like look at startup organizations or there's a particular person who just says creativity isn't about just sitting there playing with toys. And I think, yes, having funky things in a room, just sitting there, not doing anything, isn't necessarily going to unlock the creativity. But if you have toys in a room and you're doing purposeful activities with them and you're interacting with them and as a group you're engaged or as an individual you're engaged in that state of play, then as you say, your brain will kick in with the way it was born to function and will make the most of everything that you have in it to allow you to create something new. Like we're all unique individuals. We all have unique experiences, memories, interests, and where we're able to make new and interesting connections across all of that, which can happen if we relax and then let our brain work its way out, then that's what's going to help us create i i hate you know i hate it now when we have our phone if you if you think about when you've forgotten someone's name or uh, you watch a movie and you're like oh who did that guy play have seen him in something else the natural instinct now is to go for your cell phone and and look it up on google and i think oh don't get me started on that samantha <laughs> this is i'm after athletes all the time you know in the digital world we are sacrificing um, some of our skill set to these machines. Now that is, you know, that's not, I'm not necessarily saying that's a bad thing. You know, I, I guess it was Aristotle complained that when we wrote things down, we would lose our collective, you know, our ability to memorize, which was true, but we gained more information. Now we're starting to, to give up our ability to navigate because sat-nav will do it for us. So there's always a cost to some of these changes. But, you know, going back to what you're saying, for me, pattern recognition, prediction, and just then a dedication to incremental improvement, if you put all three of those things together, to me that is play, and to me that enhances our, our natural ability to get better at whatever it is we're doing. And, and if you want to call that play, you can call that play. 
it sure is fun for me. As you say, when you get it right and you're authentically lined up to to everything in that way, then yeah, it is fun. I totally agree and couldn't put it better myself. We've talked a lot about the idea of play. I, I feel that we can't shortchange the idea of rest as well because yes you you know you shared the lifestyle of a swim coach which is you know 10 sessions a week and land training and yes you're designing and curating those experiences but let's not forget it's the swimmers in the pool for two and two hours 15 minutes like doing length after length to and you know stressing their systems in different ways to develop themselves and enable that improvement um but you you know they're working what like eighty thousand meters a week and then Mm -hmm. they're preparing for a race and people will you know the traditional term is shave and taper so just to give people a visual like men and women are all in their hotel bathroom shaving (laughs) any type of body hair before a race so that they can better feel the water on their skin to to I guess physically feel um, more part of the the water and it it does make a difference um but also they've been tapered which is you've broken their their training from such rigorous hard work to allow their body to rest and recover but not so much that they become lethargic um you've got to find that sweet spot in the middle where they're basically like a bull being held back from bursting out the gate to to go and rock it on the in the swim pool so does a lot of attention get paid to rest? And how do you bring that into a swimmer's development? Okay, well, at the, the micro level, instead of calling it rest, we think in terms of recovery. And recovery as a part of weekly, daily, or even sessionally training, you know, rest contributes to the development of the organism. I am much more aware and we used to eyeball it in the old days, but now there are technologies that can help us with, um, with, with assisting in the recovery part of a training cycle, be it daily, weekly, or ongoing. I use a system where we measure heart rate variability. I had used it back in your brother's day. It had been imported from the Soviet Union and we used it. It was a little bit unwieldy, but now you can uh, use uh, something that goes on your thumb, looks like a pulse oximeter, attaches to your phone. I really do trust it to tell me the recovery level of each athlete day by day. And it informs me on how much work they can withstand. We joke because in, in the program I coach now, I call the thing the lie detector because it tells me more about how much stress they're under than they know. So there's that. When you start to get in terms of performance and then you eventually talked about taper, pretty much what we know scientifically is based on what someone called, uh, which uh, an old Russian scientist called Matviev, Matviev cycle, which is you stress the organism, the organism adapts to that stress, then you let go of the work and the organism rebounds and does a better performance than it started with. Now, that evolved into what is traditionally called the taper. But now there's all kinds of different ways of doing the taper. In my sport, we sort of moved beyond what the science told us was an appropriate level of MAPF cycle, how much work and how much rest. And this sort of happened by accident. As it was told to me in the 56 Olympics, 
a bunch of swimmers went all the way down to Australia. They swam. They did what they did. They came back, and this was in America. They did a country club championship and broke the world records that they did at the Olympics. And people were shocked. And from there, the idea of taper was born. It was before I was born, so this is only a story that's been passed down to me. So coaches are always trying to manipulate tapers with different levels of success, trying to time that rebound of the organism so that it reaches its highest potential when the main competition. When I go to work, like when I went to work for the first time, that's still the mindset I came in with because that's what I knew most to do is how to be an athlete. And the idea of rest and tapering is not something that is a a big, big thing talked about thing in the workplace in fact people try and not take their vacation and and um feel like being around and being present is going to get them you know more recognized or enable their performance even more and it's in fact hugely proven to be the opposite and at work (laughs) but at work every day you're performing you're being judged whether you think it or not every single day Um, so you're always having to manage yourself. You're always got an extreme volume of work on your plate. And until you get your vacation, there is no respite. And it's proven like if you go away, you go on holiday, yes, you're more relaxed. You've probably got a little bit of this rebound factor because when you, you know, just talking from my own experience, when I come back into the office, I do have more energy for about two days. (laughs) Until I think, I still think, well, I think it's the emotional mindset comes into play. Someone irritates you on a phone call and then you're like, oh, okay, right, here we are. We're back because you've got the whole uh, people side of it to deal with rather than just your own performance. But I I think, um, you know, there's also that book about play that I mentioned by um, Stuart Brown. He says that um, when people go away and they having fun and on a vacation um they're relaxed and their subconscious clicks which allows as we talked about the brain to go back into its pattern recognition and prediction systems that allow it to create and i know i've definitely had ideas on the way back from holidays on on the plane and and i now i guess have a little bit of neuroscience understanding to appreciate why that's happening so for people listening to this, like, don't shortchange your vacation time. Uh, oh, and not only that, you read a book, go to a movie every weekend. I listen to a whole bunch of podcasts, and uh, you know, and I, I'm a big reader, fifty books a year, maybe, and and it 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 constantly refreshes my pattern recognition and my thinking, and it combines with the experience I have, and it leads me to new modes of thinking. So it doesn't necessarily have to be going to an island. Anytime you can make your brain, just like with the physical, go in a different direction and return, it's like advanced and retreat learning. That's my opinion. I, I totally agree. Like I've, I've used this time. I've been out of the workplace for two years raising my family. And I've used a time, I found that my brain just curiously goes to different places. I've made sourdough bread for the first time. 
I'm going to try my hand at quilling, which I'd never even heard before till I was looking up a Christmas crafts to do with the children. And going back to a lot of what we've talked about, this will all sit now nicely in my unconscious mind and it will all connect with something else and will become something one day. I don't know what, I don't know when it's going to help me, but I know if I keep on learning like this and and building, supplementing as we've talked about what I've already got in in the tank, it will all connect and and fit together at some point. And I think that's also a little bit of the magic of living is is you just don't know when it's all going to fuse together and, and give you that moment of clarity and insight and ultimately impact. Yeah. In fact, I think you really nicely answered one of the questions I had for you, which is obviously you you are you're a very well read, very well educated man, and um, you talked about how keeping yourself active and curious has enabled you to develop new modes of thinking and in, in the coaching you do. But I've been accused before of overly flattering my podcast guests. <laughs> ah, well. Don't do me, yeah, don't do that to me. Well, and to that point, I guess the, the question I have for you to close, I guess, is I think if we were to go through and summarize it, I could probably answer this question and those listening could answer this question themselves now, but it'd be great to hear it in your words about you've done this for so long. What is it about coaching that you love the most and gets you up at 3.45 in the morning every day? Uh, I get it's actually an easier question to answer than I would have thought. It's because there's always a future. I, I was thinking about this not too long ago, and I said, "Why do I love it so much?" Because there's uh, an, an old coach once told me, "There's a new kid born every day," and what he meant by that was success or failure. There's always another project. There's always someone else who's interested in developing their potential. And as long as they sort of let me play with that, I'm going to do it. Because I can't think of anything more than being focused on what's going to happen rather than what necessarily is happening or what has already happened. Also, swimming is a massively complex undertaking. Because of the medium of water and because of its foreignness to the body, you really have to think a lot and be super creative on getting people to do it well. So when I put those two things together, it's just a whole lot of fun for me. That's why I love That it. brings together a lot of what we've said already as well, which is the pursuit of helping people achieve their, their potential. And, and also the fact that you also yourself have to be creative in how you do it because we're not all the same being with the same mindsets with the same emotions you have to get creative not just in how you get someone in the water and have them swim but how you curate a program um both physically and mentally to allow that person to become the best that they can be yeah that's that that says it really really well that's exactly how I feel about what I do. This has been such an enriching and really great conversation and you've definitely helped educate and support me around uh, learning some key points here, particularly how to express how the brain works and being able to see how that plays out in competition and what we can learn about that in how we work in a workplace or just in life is hugely fascinating and really appreciate it and know that you have made an impact in both mine and my brother's life and you're still someone who you know I wanted to come back to and have on this podcast because I know how much insight and what such an interesting guy you are so I really appreciate you taking the time to come on the podcast today 
Well, thank you for having me, Sam. And please give my best to your wonderful parents, no matter what you say, <laughs> and your cheeky brother, who I'm hoping that you can still keep in line. <laughs> for sure. <laughs> thank you so much. Cheers. Thank you for listening to the Natural Born Thinkers podcast. More information about today's guest and any of the resources shared during the conversation can be found in the podcast show notes. To find out more about Natural Born Thinkers, please visit the Natural Born Thinkers website and follow us on Instagram at Natural Born Thinkers. Today's show was produced by Force 9 Audio and podcast graphics were designed by Carl Gamble. Natural Born Thinkers is at the beginning of its journey and thank you for joining us on this adventure. Until the next time.